Today we're going to talk about the seventh episode of Ulysses, which takes place for the most part in a newspaper office. So we have come to the site of the newspaper office. We're standing in Princess Street, North Princess Street, which is right beside the GPO, and looking towards O'Connell Street, where this episode opens with all of the trams being marshalled near Nelson's Pillar. Nelson's Pillar in 1904 was the terminus for most trams that went in the city. We find Bloom, whom we last left, leaving the cemetery. And now he's in the Freeman's Journal office, which was here in Princess Street. It, of course, was demolished during 1916 shellings. Bloom is there with Red Murray, who works in the office, and he's looking for a copy of Key's ad. There it is, Red Murray said. Alexander Keyes. Just cut it out, will you? Mr Bloom said. And I'll take it round to the telegraph office. Red Murray's long shears sliced out the advertisement from the newspaper in four clean strokes. Scissors and paste. Murray says that he will get a paragraph in the Freeman's Journal if uh, Bloom gets the renewal of the ad. At that time, newspapers in Dublin were really local in many ways, insofar as they could give little puffs to local shops and say what a good shop they were and how much new stock they had certainly got in. Bloom, while he's standing with Murray, sees a Mr. Braden going up the stairs and he owns the Freeman's Journal and the Evening Telegraph. Bloom then goes on to Nanetti, who seems to be the business manager of the newspaper, and he finds Hines there already. Hines probably giving in the report of the funeral of Mr. Dignam. And Bloom again gives him a gentle hint about the money he owes him, but Hines conveniently ignores that. If you want to draw, the cashier is just going to lunch. He said, pointing backward with his thumb. Did you? Hines asked. Mm, look sharp and you'll catch him. Thanks, old man. Hines said. I'd tap him too. He hurried on eagerly towards the Freeman's journal. Three bob I lent him in Mars. Three weeks. Third hint. The interesting thing is here that Nanetti, we find, is not Irish. Well, he's Irish insofar as his father came from Italy, and he has been totally accepted insofar as he's a councillor now and maybe a candidate for Lord Mayor even. So Hines diplomatically addresses him as councillor, and Bloom decides to do the same. Bloom explains to him about the cross keys at the top of the ad, which is a symbol of the Isle of Man, and this might influence trippers coming to Dublin from the Isle of Man to go to Mr Key's shop. You know yourself, councillor, just what he wants. Then, round the top in leaded, the House of Keys. you see? Do you think that's a good idea? The foreman moved his scratching hands to his lower ribs and scratched there quietly. The idea, Mr. Bloom said, is the House of Keys. You know, Councillor, the Manx Parliament, innuendo of home rule. Tourists, you know, from the Isle of Man. Catches the eye, you see. Nanetti, anyway, says he agrees, and he says he'd give a paragraph in the Evening Telegraph if he gets three months to renewal, which is rather a tall order for any advertisement anyway. Bloom then goes on to the, uh, the telegraph offices and we find Ned Lambert there reading Dan Dawson's speech to Simon Dedalus and to Professor McHugh. So Simon Dedalus has come back too as well. Note the meanderings of some purling rill as it babbles on its way, fanned by gentlest zephyrs though quarrelling with the stony obstacles to the tumbling waters of Neptune's blue domain, mid mossy banks, played on by the glorious sunlight 
or neath the shadows cast o'er its pensive bosom by the overarching leafage of the giants of the forest. J.J. O'Malloy, a broken down lawyer, comes in, and Miles Crawford, the editor of the Evening Telegraph, comes in from an inner office, and he seems to be in delirium tremens because he speaks a lot of nonsense. North Cork Militia, the editor cried, striding to the mantelpiece. We won every time. North Cork and Spanish officers. Where was that, Miles? Ned Lambert asked with a reflective glance at his toe-caps. In Ohio! The editor shouted. Simon Dedalus and Ned Lambert get fed up with Dan Dawson's speech and they go off to the Oval Bar for a drink. This is still there, round an Abbey Street, just round the block from us from where we are now. Bloom nips in to phone Keyes about the ad, but he finds that Keyes is, in fact just a block away from him on Bachelor's Walk in uh, an auction rooms. Lennon then comes in. The characters keep on coming into this thing and it's very hard to keep track of them. And he starts talking about the Gold Cup. Spot the winner. Lenehan came out of the inner office with sports tissues. Who wants a dead cert for the Gold Cup? He asked. Scepter with O Madden up. Bloom then says he's off to Dylan's auction room. No one cares where he's going, but McHugh and Lenehan watch him from the window as he goes, and all the, the newsboys who are waiting for the newspapers troop after him, imitating his walk. Look at the young gutter snipe behind him. Hue and cry, Lenehan said. And you'll kick. Oh, my rib risable. Taken off his flat sprogs. And the walk. Small nines. Steal upon larks. He began to mazurka in swift caricature across the floor on sliding feet past the fireplace to J.J. O'Malloy, who placed the tissues in his receiving hands. What's that? Miles Crawford said with a start. Crawford then starts talking about Ireland, the helplessness of Ireland against England. Now, Martin Burke and Stephen then come in. They have met somewhere, we don't know where, and Stephen gives Crawford the letter. The letter is not mine. Mr. Garrett D.C. asked me to. Oh, I know him, Miles Crawford said. And knew his wife too. The bloodiest old tatter God ever made. And has uh, quite a fearful wife who once, he said, threw soup over the, the waiter in the star and garter. Anyway, he agrees to put in the letter. He says it'll be all right. McHugh then compares the Irish to the Greeks, McHugh being a professor of classics in their servitude to foreign masters. But uh, Crawford tells of a scoop that Ignatius Gallagher, seemingly a well-known journalist, made at the time of the Invincibles. Of course, talk turns to trials and advocates, and of course, everyone says, advocates today are no good. And someone says, well, maybe Seymour Bush was a, an exception. McHugh then recalls another advocate, J.F. Taylor, who at the Hist in Trinity, speaking of the Irish language, gave a magnificent speech, so good that Joyce actually made a record of it. But Joyce then gives this thing, of saying, had Moses never gone to the mountaintop and all the rest, he would never come down with the tables of the law, graven in the language of the outlaw. And of course, the parallel is obvious to the Irish language, we should do it. Stephen then remembers that he has money and proposes to go for a drink. Gentlemen, Stephen said, as the next motion on the agenda paper, may I suggest that the House do now adjourn? To Mooney's, which... They would have to go out the front door of the newspaper office, turn left, past the Oval, where Stephen's father is drinking, cross O'Connell Street, 
and just where the Irish Parliament Building Society is now, Mooney's Watch, you can still see it over the door. But the irony of it is, if they, if they go there, Mulligan and Haynes are about three doors down waiting for Stephen, and don't know he's there, but that's something else. While they go there, Stephen tells the parable of the plums about two old ladies who went up Nelson's Pillar. It has a parallel with Taylor's speech. Uh, anyway, McHugh, who is walking with Stephen, is the only one who actually sees the point of the whole story. Bloom, in the meantime, has come back from the auction room and wants to know from Crawford if he'll give a paragraph in the paper for the ad, and he is told to KMRIA. He can kiss my royal Irish arse. Miles Crawford cried loudly over his shoulder. Any time he likes, tell him. And when we then look at the trams, there's been a short circuit in the electricity supply and all of them are becalmed throughout the city. Is that a, a fair summary? I think insofar as... Any chapter of Ulysses can be summarised, and this is particularly tricky because it's very complex. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone reading it uh, the first time could give a list of the new characters. They keep mm -hmm. coming and going, things are interrupted, nothing is ever quite developed. So it is confusing, and it's particularly confusing for readers who probably got used to Joyce's method in the first six chapters. They're all subjective, seen through either Stephen or Bloom, with uh, a lot of uh, interior monologue, and it could have gone on like that, but here Joyce changes it. For the first time, we have action that's independent of either Bloom and Stephen, but they're still there. It's also the only chapter so far where we see some people at work. But there's something new. You have... A striking element that you see at once, you have things in different, heavier print, usually capitalized, whatever the edition does. These are intrusive things that seem to tell what's going on. We can now account for them by saying we are in a newspaper office, so it's the production of a newspaper with ads and articles, news. So the chapter, in its physical appearance, uh, tries to look like a newspaper. Now, these headings are strange. They begin in a straightforward way, in the heart of the Hibernian metropolis, exit bloom. In the heart of the Hibernian metropolis, exit bloom. The wearer of the crown, gentlemen of the press. But they seem to take on a life of their own and they become more fanciful and more complicated towards the end and sometimes they become cryptic, like one... Dames donate Dublin sits speed pills, velocitous aeroliths, belief. This is something that we do not understand at first, and it is actually what follows afterwards that in part explains what it is, and very often the relation between the headings and the text that follows is strange. Occasionally the headings are almost as long as the text. So Joyce uh, introduces a playful element, something uh, parodistic. But actually it's a new kind of perspective, one from outside. We Here we realize we are in a story that is put together as a newspaper is. But we have a continuous action. This is a chapter that focuses less on individuals, as we had it before, the main character, though they turn up, but there are many minor characters that intersect. It's a chapter of intersections, uh, coming and going, and I don't think anyone will remember all those names. It's 
I think intentionally confusing, we lose our orientation. It focuses on the city as a city, the heart of the Hibernian metropolis. And so we have tram lines, as I say, the pillar was the place where most of the tram lines converged. They go in all directions. We are near the post office and we have the postal service. Telegram is mentioned. We have the newspaper that goes in all directions. So it's the sort of thing that the infrastructure that keeps uh, our civilization uh, together. And, the, and there's a lot of that. And you see, it, it, it goes in all directions. It's very hard to keep track of things. And um, I see the themes are never quite developed. There's kind of constant uh, interruption. Interestingly enough, we also have, in a way, literary criticism, uh, something like that, because these people they obviously have a good sense of language. They laugh at the pompous, the inflated language of Dan Dawson's speech, which they already laughed at in the funeral carriage. The pensive bosom and the overarsing leafage, oh boys, oh boys. They laugh at one speech, but they praise another one that by Taylor as a great instance of, you know, of rhetorical skills, and it is. Great was my admiration in listening to the remarks addressed to the youth of Ireland a moment since by my learned friend. It seemed to me that I had been transported into a country far away from this country, into an age remote from this age, that I stood in ancient Egypt and that I was listening to the speech of some high priest of that land addressed to the youthful Moses. In contrast to this, we have Stephen's very plain speech, totally unadorned by anything rhetorical, just a slice of life. So it's a very plain, unadorned story that then, because these are newspaper people, who ask for a title. And it's then only that the title is given, A Parable of the Plums. Two Dublin Vestals, Stephen said. Elderly and pious have lived 50 and 53 years in Fumbally's Lane. They want to see the views of Dublin from the top of Nelson's Pillar. They save up three and tenpence in a red tin letterbox money box. They shake out... Well, the parable, briefly, as far as I remember it, is that two old ladies from the Liberties of Dublin saved up money in a red money box, go to Marlborough Street and buy some brawn, and at the foot of the pillar they buy some plums, and then they pay their entrance fee into the pillar and walk up the steps and complain about the height they didn't know, look out through the slits and say, God, anyway, they encourage one another, get to the top and look out. And as I said before, all they see is churches and they were afraid to look out at the city and they were afraid to look up at the statue that was above them. And they ate the brawn and the plums and while they were eating the plums, they spit the stones out through the railings. That's the story. And I think... If it is a parable, I don't know what it means, but my interpretation of it would be that they represent the Irish people and they're caught, like Stephen, between two masters, the church and Nelson, who is British, and they're afraid of both, and they sit immobile between the two and just spit something that won't even grow, it's not even a seed onto the city. Whereas Taylor was saying... If we have vision, and if we come down in some way with authority, then we can achieve something. And I think that's why McHugh says... You remind me of Antisthenes, the professor said. A disciple of Gorgias, the sophist. 
It is said of him that none could tell if he were bitterer against others or against himself. Again, the bitterness of Stephen is yes, remarkable. That, yes. that's it. Now, Stephen, I don't think, tells it with a view to that. He just makes up mm. a, a very simple kind of story and then interpretation comes on, which, of course, is something we can apply to Joyce. You know, we mm. often interpret an outsider and say, now, did he really mean that? But that's a different But he question. does give the subheading, uh, Fisker, mm-hmm. site of Palestine, yeah. which uh, would be mosaic again, yeah. because although Moses saw the promised land, he never reached yeah. it. Yeah, well, that's something uh, Joyce uh, puts in Moses in several mm-hmm. ways. Uh, he, first of all, the Bloom thinks of his father, and we now know that his father was clearly a, a Jew who observed or remembered observing the ritual of the Pesach, Passover feast. Bloom thinks of it because he sees the typeset and thinks wrongly that he's reading it from right to left, they're reading it upside down, and that reminds him of Hebrew and his father, and so uh, this theme is introduced then. And then Moses comes up because the statue of Moses in the wrong place in Rome has been described in a very formal, very classical period and that's admired and then they move on to Taylor's speech and I think that the Irish were still waiting for their liberation, the equivalent of the Jews and the Egyptian captivity was often used this was a contemporary yes. uh, metaphor yes, of course. All that long business about that brought us out of the land of Egypt and into the house of bondage, hallelujah But we also see Stephen needlessly bringing all this crowd for a drink having no money, and we have a feeling that he has difficulty in getting money. And yet Crawford asks him to write something for the newspaper. The editor laid a nervous hand on Stephen's shoulder. I want you to write something for me, he said. Something with a bite in it. You can do it. I see it in your face, in the lexicon of youth. See it in your face. See it in your eye. Lazy, idle little schemer. And uh, Crawford says, put us all in it, and Jake's McCarthy mm-hmm. as well. Which, of course, is exactly what we're reading. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen actually did take Crawford's advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, as Joyce, went off and wrote this book in which every one of them are there. We can all supply mental pabulum, Mr O'Madden Burke said. Stephen raised his eyes to the bold, unheeding stare. But as a work of fiction, I at least lose sympathy with Stephen. He has the opportunity to do things and just won't do them. Yeah, yeah. And he rather needlessly goes out of way to invite uh, journalists who are bet- better off for a drink. There's, and uh, following his father's footsteps. Hmm? That's Accurately, it. Yes. And of course, he should have been with Mulligan. And he knew he should have been with Mulligan. Uh, we learn that he has sent, oddly enough, a telegram mm. to the place, the ship, which consists, we later learn, merely of a quote, mm. which is a strange kind of behaviour. And he is as fast almost as the telegram itself in getting there. I'd like to come back, you mentioned that briefly, this ad for Keyes. Mm -hmm. Alexander Mm Keyes was a real uh, existing publican. The ad, I think Joyce invented, and it's based on a play of words again. His name is Keyes, Mm -hmm. and uh, Bloom crosses his fingers, two crossed keys, and I already said it has reference to the Isle of Man, who had their local autonomy, a kind of equivalent to home rule. It's also the insignia of the Vatican, so we have ecclesiastical and political relevance. And, of course, it so happens that we have crossing, though not meeting, the two main characters, both 
who do not have keys. Mm. So there's a lot of that that uh, we are probably now alerted to certain topics. Key is one. And again, I insist, this only works in English. Mm. Uh, but wait. Mr. Bloom said. He wants it changed. Keys, you see. He wants two keys at the top. And the whole chapter has machinery. Telephone, printing presses, mm. trams, uh, bumping barrels. Um, Hell of a racket they make. Maybe he understands what I... The foreman turned round to hear patiently and, lifting an elbow, began to scratch slowly in the armpit of his alpaca jacket. Like that, Mr Bloom said, crossing his forefingers at the top. The only thing that's missing in the whole thing is money. Oh, Malloy comes... There's J.J. Malloy who comes... Comes specifically to get a loan backed by Crawford. And Crawford can't because Mm -hmm. he says he has no money. We're told that McHugh, although a professor, certainly has no money. Simon Dedalus has no money. We don't know mm-hmm. about O'Madden Burke. Stephen has money, but he hasn't got money. <laughs> yeah, but the money he has, he, you know, he, he throws... He's throwing it away. Yeah, I would almost say throws it to the winds, which brings <laughs> me to another uh, chap. No. Yes. And that is the, the Homeric. From now on, I think it's useful to really use these Homeric, mm. not overrating them, but using them simply to keep the chapters apart, uh, mm. because one le- loses track of counting. And this is named after Eolos, Aeolus, Aeolus, he was the god of the winds. The winds went into all directions. Odysseus came there with with his whole uh, 12 ships and crew, and he was given the bag of the winds. That probably means all the bad winds were inside and the good winds you needed then to sail. And he came inside of his home. He already saw the smoke rising, but he fell asleep, and his companions, distrustful of him, opened the bag they thought there was a present for him and the bad winds rushed out and blew him back and then he was sent away. He was cursed by the gods. And this happens on a very small scale when uh, Bloom first says, I'm going around to Bachelor's Walk. It's not very far. The editor, who, leaning against the mantel shelf, had propped his head on his hand, suddenly stretched forth an arm amply. Be gone, he said. The world is before you. And when he comes back and Whaler is the editor about the triviality of this ad, which wouldn't interest him. And, of course, you shouldn't stop an Irishman on the way to getting a drink anyway. And when he says, what shall I tell him? Then you have this famous KMA first, which we don't understand. And now everyone knows this, which then the the editor spells out, kiss my arse, and then it's repeating, kiss my royal Irish arse. This is, I mean, the action on a very, very trivial and uh, ridiculous level. But the chapter is full of wind, literally. The wind is blowing. Um, there are lots of metaphors like raising the wind for, um, I think, getting alone. You get words like inspiration. There is inflated speech. Language is, after all, vibrating air. And the theme of not quite reaching the goal. Odysseus was nearly home. If he had gone home, he wouldn't have an odyssey. But uh, something went wrong. He only saw his goal, just as Bloom doesn't know whether he will get that ad or not, just as Moses never reached the Holy Lamb. And the next step is when we don't get things, we can't follow it, just if you drop into a conversation, we can't follow it. So, I mean, our failure to understand everything is almost a theme in the chapter. I throw this out by way of uh, consolation. The site of Ethica. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One of these silly poems says... I don't see Joe Miller, can you? Mm. Joe Miller is a joke. A joke. Slang. So, and often we can't see it, at least not at first time. We've, in a way, thrown into something, 
listen and can follow or, or cannot follow as it would be in um, in real life. Lenehan's Limerick. There's a ponderous pundit, McHugh, who wears goggles of ebony hue, as he mostly sees double. To wear them, why trouble? I can't see the Joe Miller. Can you? In this chapter, the two main characters come close to each other. Mm. Bloom has already seen Stephen earlier in, in the previous chapter. So there are some near meetings. The other thing is there's many more people, and this chapter also shows that the book could have been written about any of the other characters, Lenehan or Gordon or J.G. Molloy and all of that. These were all possibilities uh, that have not been filled. Yeah. You see, the essential thing about Bloom and even about Stephen is that they're both outsiders. Yeah. The aim of all the rest of the characters and what they're successful in mm -hmm. is being insiders. We saw that in the cemetery, in the funeral. I mean, everyone was an insider, bar Bloom, uh, Kernan to a, a certain extent. And but Stephen almost refuses to become, as you said. I mean, he had a chance to make some money. Yes, he's offered and, I mean, many people would like to mm. be asked uh, to contribute, mm. and uh, he, he doesn't do anything. Yeah, That's what I'm saying. He consciously stays outside. Mm -hmm. Bloom constantly strives to get inside, yeah. but is frustrated through his own ineptness in many ways, which he doesn't see. Everyone else sees how inept he is, but he thinks he's quite clever. In many ways, too, there's... A, no reason why he should be kept out. There isn't an, an animosity towards him, uh, and not an overt one, anyway. And uh, from what I read in the book, there's a, a sort of grudging admiration of him in some quarters. I mean, they'd say... He'll get that advertisement, the professor said. And maybe it is that he is prepared to work. He's the only one that is working, remember, yeah, in yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one else does any work mm -hmm. in it. Well, Hines brings a report. That's another um, no. element here. <clears throat> Hines there, and Bloom thinks correctly, uh, he is doing a report on the funeral. Mm. He even thinks of a sentence that Bloom may be imagining or maybe read off some proof or whatever um, of the report. So the, the events of Chapter 6 become a report mm. in Chapter 7. This morning, the remains of the late Mr. Patrick Dignam. Machines smash a man to atoms if they got him caught. Rule the world today. Now, this is worth mentioning because we sometimes think or even tell people that Ulysses is the modern city life novel, and yet much of it is not representative of an ordinary city day. Just as we outsiders often thought, oh, he gives the spectrum of all of the city, but it, it's still a fairly narrow... It's a strata of society yeah. that's very well represented mm -hmm. and an element of the city that's mm -hmm. there. But we may have the illusion that it is. That's but that's the art of the yeah. book. It gives you the illusion that you know Dublin. But there are vast tracts of the city that aren't mentioned at all. She has to rock on a rock, the seamen cried in the breath of their wild dismay. And that ship went down with that fair young bride that sailed from Dublin. 